Welcome to Intrepid Media, the show for the business professional. Here, we're going to talk about business topics such as leadership, sales, marketing, HR, innovation, strategy, and technology. But we're also going to riff about lifestyle too and help you look better, feel better, and live better. This show is everything the modern business professional needs, from the C-level executive to the millennial. So let's get on with the show. Good morning and welcome back to Intrepid Business. I am your host, Todd Schnick. Another conversation about moving beyond the competition, creating more value, and becoming the obvious choice to your prospect. Can't have enough conversations about how to think about and how to more appropriately approach these important matters. It's going to be a great conversation. Another way to look and think about this going to be great. I'm joined now by Peter Sheehan. He is the founder and group CEO of the Kerrigan's Group and the author of a new book called Matter. Move beyond the competition, create more value, and become the obvious choice. Pete, welcome to the show. G'day, Todd. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. I appreciate uh, you making time to join us. Very much looking forward to this conversation. Appreciate you making time. Pete, before we get into the book and its very important message, take a few quick seconds. Tell us a bit about you, your background, and the work that you're doing out of Carrican's Group. Yeah, so I founded Carrican's Group about 15 years ago mostly to help students make the successful transition from school to work. And in the 15 years that have followed, we've grown it significantly. We basically do three things. Number one, we help enable growth inside of enterprises facing change and disruption. So we look at culture, leadership capability, business models, and market relevance. So if a major corporation buys another major corporation for a few billion dollars, we're usually involved in a process like that. Or if a small organization is trying to evolve the way they go to market and change the way they do what they do, we play a part in that. Two, we uh, help organizations increase the social impact and business value of their community investments, as mostly from a reputational plane and engagement perspective. And then the third division within the business, third practice area, does primary research in understanding how business and markets are evolving and therefore allow our clients to get ahead of that curve. And books like Matter, and flip and making it happen and generation Y that all came before it really have come out of that full leadership engine. Outstanding. Well, appreciate the important work that you're doing. All right. So the new book matter. Yeah. I ask some variant of this question to most of my guests who have written on a subject matter that let's just say, if you were to go to Amazon and say, help me move beyond the competition, there's probably a lot of titles on that idea, on that theme, on that subject. Uh, why did the world need Pete's take on matter? Why, why was this book necessary? Yeah, I think there's a couple of reasons why. Number one, a lot of the studies that have led to these publications were done significant time ago. And in fact, the methodology dictates that you often have to look at a very historical lens. And what we tried to do with Matter was make it part research, part manifesto, where we looked at what was happening in this market with a level of digital disruption that's taking place, the winner-takes-all reality of the omni-channel world. And you know, we, we felt like a real-time look into this topic was important. That would be number one. Number two, we were seeing, because of the multiple practice areas within Carrican's group, and we're in about seven different countries, we were seeing across the world a coming together of both business and economic value creation with community and social value creation. And so part of the title, Matter, talks directly to this idea that there are some companies that truly matter to the communities and they can be customers and stakeholders and staff that they serve and that matter more than others. And we were looking at what's the relationship between 
differentiation at like a product or an attribute level versus having someone actually become invested in your success. And that was particularly what we were looking at. Well, what were the brands and organizations that were able to build such connection with the stakeholder groups that they appeal to that those stakeholders became vested in their success? And then number three, I was sitting in a meeting with the head of sales enablement of, at a Fortune 5 company, and he was complaining that they don't get invited into the room anymore, and the market wasn't seeing them as having viable solutions to significant problems. And I was like, man, if you can be a Fortune 5 company and not get invited into the room, we're seriously undergoing some change right now. So those three things combined really led to the beginning of the research process, which is now it took about five years to get it done. Well, we're going to go into that research process in, in just a little bit. This uh, You partially answered the question of uh, of the definition of matter. I mean, I, I, I get it. It's a company that matters. The, the, you know, no surprise to you, Pete, I interview an awful lot of people in business and we talk about a lot of subjects that there's like engagement and, and, and digital disruption, which we're going to talk about. And I, this idea of, if you, I think if you were to sit down 10 people in business and say, define what it means to be a company that matters. I, I think you'd get 10 different answers. They, they may be somewhat similar, but I think that therein lies part of the problem. Therein lies also part of the opportunity, which is really exciting. But how do you define, I mean, you said vested in in their partner's success, but how do you, what, what's the, the, the Pete Sheehan definition of a company that matters? I would say there's three criteria. Number one, they have a sustained ability to create either a price premium or a choice premium in their marketplace. Two, they, their customers and stakeholders would know and care if they disappeared. There was a fascinating study done a couple of years ago that said, I think it was about 76% of brands, if they disappeared tomorrow, customers would neither care or may not even notice. And then three, that they make their decisions as to the value they create in more than 90-day reporting cycles, so a longer-term sense of of impact and contribution, both to the shareholder, but also to the markets they serve as well. Now, the idea of 76% of organizations, if they went away, you'd, you might not even notice. I mean, think about I'm just th thinking to myself here, and I think about the organizations that I do business with, and I'm talking virtually everything from the, the Apple computers that I use to shampoo that I buy, I mean, those kinds of things. There, there is something to be said for, all right, well, what do you mean by a company that matters saying, all right, well, if, if I was gone, would that matter to you? And I, I think most people don't ask that question or they don't really understand. They haven't really pondered that. And if you look, if you look around your room right now where you're sitting listening to this and, and look at various products and brands that you use and interact with, and if you were asked that question, well, would it matter if that was gone? If the answer is yes, well, then boom, there's a lesson there. And I think a lot of people are too afraid to look at their organization and the products and services they sell and ask that question because I think they would fear, eh, I might be one of those 76%. I mean, is, how, how prevalent a problem is this? I suspect it's pretty serious. Yeah, and it's not just in consumer products because we naturally go to the shampoo we use or the computers and smartphones that we might engage with, but it's as much relevant for a financial advisor, an insurance broker, or a supply chain partner in distribution, you know? And so all of us have to ask ourselves the question, are we creating significant enough impact and making a big enough contribution and creating enough value? And we can talk about how you do that here in a second 
that the people we're engaging with and that we need to influence the most actually care. And what we found in the research was groundbreaking, I know, was that you either create more value or you don't. But we dug very, very deep into that question of value creation. And we found that there were basically two orientations of the companies that we looked at. One was our margin extractor. That is, they almost intentionally created friction in the value chain so they could extract part of the margin as a product meant went from origin through to solution or use by either the consumer or the or the business or whomever they were selling it to. And they weren't really linked to how do we add more value to this process, but more how do we extract value from this process. And then the other types of company, the, the other orientation was, no, no, we're here to create net new value that wouldn't otherwise exist if we weren't here. And we found plenty of examples of industries where, say, a distributor, for instance, once created a great deal of value in a value chain because people needed access to product, um, a physical bricks and mortar environment, and someone to stay on top of product knowledge and information. Well, now product knowledge and information comes on the web. Amazon supply can solve the distribution challenge. And in fact, sometimes faster than your local bricks and mortar distribution retail environment would have, right? And so you'd have to ask yourself the question if you're one of those supply distributors, am I actually just creating friction in the process and slowing the customer's progress to the future? Or am I adding net new value? And that's where they begin to evolve their business and ask better questions about rather than just extract margin here, how do I create this value? And that's really what we try to understand. Well, see, therein lies another word that I think people have a different understanding of what it means, this idea of, of value. And, and I'm going to be thinking more about extracting value. That's a, that's a, a different approach than I've thought about before. I, but it's another area. If you say to someone, hey, is your, are you creating value for your customers? And I think most people would say, well, yeah. But I don't know that they've really asked themselves the hard question there. How, how do we do that better? How do we really understand this idea of are we in fact creating more value for our customers in, in the way that truly matters? I can see now where you pulled the title of this book because I think people think, well, maybe I'm creating value, but maybe it's value that, all right, it's value that I expect from any shampoo that I buy. Or am I creating something that says if the shampoo stopped production, I would say, oh, then I would be sad. I would I would feel bad that I lost it, and I I wouldn't know where to go next. I mean, how do you how do you determine if you are in fact creating value for for people? One way to think about it is relative to available substitutes. Am I creating something that would differentiate my solution above and beyond price? Right. So let's use your shampoo example for some reasons, right? If there's a $1 shampoo and you're a $1.20 shampoo, what is it about your $1.20, their 20% delta between yours and theirs, that the customer places importance on, that the customer places, quote-unquote, value on? And that's really the question, which is if you don't want to compete on price alone, how are you going to win in the market? And let's just be really clear. We didn't find a single industry on earth where price was not important, and we didn't find a single company on earth where they didn't have to compete on price, but we found examples of companies like Nike, like Adobe, like Burberry, like Blue Shore Financial, like Lakeside Logistics and Freight. Like we, we found companies that were able to be within the realm of price competition, but created additional value in the mind of the buyer that allowed them to be either chosen at the same price without being shopped around or actually chosen at a higher price because of that net additional importance, that net additional impact. So that's really the way to understand it is relative to substitutes. And there were five 
attributes that emerged from the work that were essentially the source of what a customer or a B2B buyer or a consumer would consider valuable. And I'll, I can unpack those for you here, Todd, now if you like. And then number two, where were the opportunities across those five attributes, those five drivers coming from in the current marketplace? And that's sort of when we went to the next level where the conversation went. Hmm. All right, we'll have to do that after the break. So right now, Pete Sheehan and I will return after this coming break. We'll be right back. Think Next, Act Now is an entrepreneurial movement. It is a teaching platform, a coaching forum that emphasizes action. And the link between thought and action makes a difference in the outcome you determine or the result that's determined for you. When you see, seize, and create opportunity for yourself, you take a big step toward becoming recession-proof and changing your life. If you are determined to make a change in your life, Think Next, Act Now will provide the essential toolkit to move your life forward. Only realized potential cashes the check of reality. Now is the time to realize your potential. Think Next, Act Now, and go always forward. To learn more, go to BillWoodich.com. That's BillWoodich.com. All right, I am back with Peter Sheehan, the author of a new book called Matter, Move Beyond the Competition, Create More Value, and Become the Obvious Choice. So as we uh, close the top half of the show, we were talking about value. So what, in fact, does connote value in the, in the mind of the buyer, and where do, where do you find those opportunities today? Yeah, we found it across five. Call them attributes, call them drivers. One is the level of importance of the problem you're solving. That is, there are problems your customers care about, and there are problems they care about more. Let me give you a simple example. When Nike was founded, they essentially solved the problem the amateur athlete had, which was access to functional equipment. For athletic apparel, it worked in what was in an increasingly emerging field of amateur you know, recreational exercise. Then all of a sudden, that problem got solved by them and multiple other brands, so there was no differentiation left there, and it became about social identity and community and belonging and, you know, does the equipment and apparel are you say something about me, which was I want to be like Mike and the Bo Jackson stuff and this kind of celebrity branded piece. What's the ultimate challenge, though, that the amateur athlete has today? And it's not access to equipment or looking good in that equipment and that apparel. It's behavior change, right? So the highest order problem an amateur athlete has is can you motivate me to engage with discipline in the aspiration I have around physical health and activity? Right? And Nike are moving into that space with Nike Plus and the, the sensors and the Internet of Things and the machine-to-machine technology they're embedding in their product to help not only solve the functional problem but solve the higher-order problem, which is how do I keep you accountable? Right? So importance was number one. Scarcity slash complexity was number two. And I use those words together because we know that if something is scarce and important, it's necessarily valuable, right? But what we found was the more complexity existed, particularly in a B2B space within the problem set, the less available substitutes there were. So if you're seeking scarcity, then finding the complexity to the higher order problem is where you want to play. Three is risk and alleviation of risk, particularly in a B2B context. Can you take risk off their balance sheet, put it on yours? Can you take risk out of their organization and absorb it into yours? And vice versa, even from a customer and consumer perspective as well. Four was friction. Can you remove friction from the process, make it easier, faster, simpler? Uber's the perfect example of removing friction for a consumer right now. And then the fifth one was story and identity, which is just brand ultimately is are you able to create an attachment to an identity 
that I place personal value on. What was interesting, though, was the emergence of an attachment to stories and identity that were less discovered and less commercial or that were more socially minded, if you think of Warby Parker or Tom's Shoes as an example. Now, really quickly, you don't necessarily have to be all five, but if you can be three or four of the five, that usually would suggest that you were moving beyond the competition and becoming the obvious choice. With one caveat, sometimes the story is built by the creation of friction as opposed to the other way around. So it's not always about getting all five, if that makes sense. So there were the five drivers. Top. But the second part of your question was, where do you find that? And this, was the, this is, one of, I think, one of the most unique contributions that the book Matter will make to the literature. And it was this notion of what we came to call the edge of disruption. And the edge of disruption was the intersection between three different forces. Imagine three overlapping circles, like a Venn diagram. You've got existing capability, likely inside your organization. You've got market need, and you've got disruption. And what we found is that where disruption begun to overlap with capability and need, there was new value-creating opportunities, and I'll explain why. If you're at the edge of your capability, and then disruption comes along and creates not only change, but creates emerging possibilities, new ways of doing things, new, new capability that didn't previously exist before the disruptive force emerged, right? And then that very same disruption is probably the thing keeping your customers up at night as well. So it's creating a higher order problem. It's creating the need that is currently unsatisfied. So where you can find the overlap between the disruptive force, capability, and need, market need, then that was what we came to call the edge of disruption. It's basically where your historical approach to business is creating enough margin, enough capital, enough free cash flow to invest in the emerging business models of the future. Mm. Boy, lots to think about there. I think one of the key lessons from listening to you there is this idea that this process never ends, right? I mean, if you hear, hearing you tell the Nike story, Nike looks a heck of a lot different today than it did in the 1970s. And, and even thinking about Uber, which you mentioned, the Uber that we understand today is going to look very different in a couple of years. And they're aggressively pursuing that. And we would say, wow, you've disrupted this entire market and you're dominating now. And everyone says they are the Uber of this and the Uber of that. But they're looking to dramatically change how they're going to be in the market in just a matter of years. I mean, they're proactively doing that. And, you know, I mean, think about Nike again. I mean, would you have ever thought that Nike would have a, a strong and some say are at this moment even more dominating competitor in Under Armour, but Under Armour did it. And so Nike is Nike's going to look at that as all right. Well, I guess we lost and we're defeated. No, they're going to they're going to take that and they're going to figure out using this edge of disruption model where they can go from here and remain competitive, if not once again become the dominant force in the market versus even someone as hip and cool as Under Armour, right? So I guess the key lesson in all my rant there is that this process never ends. You don't solve it and say, okay, done. Now let's just coast and enjoy the profits. No, this this process of iterating and, and, and innovating and, and thinking about these things and continuing to be a company that matters, the process never ends, right? Yes. I think there's two unique observations here. One is that it's a self perpetuating cycle, depending on which direction you choose to go. And number two, it is in fact a process. And that's the sequence, the chapters in the book unpack the process. But let me give you observation number one. If you were to choose to go after price instead of upping the value you create by moving towards important, scarce, risk-free, frictionless, powerful story, right? 
then and instead go on price. And what you do is you reduce your margin. You reduce your margin, you reduce your free cash flow. You reduce your free cash flow, you reduce your capacity to invest in innovation. You reduce your innovation, you reduce your differentiation, which means you have to compete further on price. And down and down the spiral goes, the commoditization spiral. Versus having enough courage to move now before you're being completely disrupted, by the way, while you've still got engaged customers, while you've still got engaged you know, employees, while you've still got invested shareholders who believe in your ability to, to kind of get to the next level, start to go on the other spiral, which is finding the edge of disruption, looking for the opportunities that emerge there, establishing a perspective on how to build a business model that are sustainable, co-create and develop the relationships necessary to get that done in the market and then have the courage to invest in the very things, which is the sequential nature of the findings of the book. And all of a sudden you find a point of difference, which is beyond price, which creates a higher margin, which frees up more money to invest in innovation, which allows you to move to the next edge of disruption and on and on and on it goes. And the companies we study that truly matter have been able to do so in many cases sustainably over time, because once you start operating like that, no one wants to go and get in a price war. No one wants to be irrelevant in the market. No one wants to be extracting margin when they can be creating value. Well, doing it ahead of when you're when you are disrupted and doing it when you have engaged customers, engaged users, I think I think does two things for you. One is is one, they want to be a part of the evolution. They're they're so bought into what you're about and what you stand for that they're willing to to throw away their iPod because you're offering the iPhone. Because they say, oh, this is the next evolution of my association with this brand. And I'm willing to do that because I want to be a continued part of the story. Two, they also are going to give you the feedback <laughs> that might say, oh, this is not a good path to go down. So you might want to rethink this and make some adjustments. Am I on the right path there? Yeah. Let me add one thing to that too, by the way, is that Change actually usually happens more slowly than people realize. You referenced Todd Uber in this conversation, right? Um, Uber's 11 years old this October. Wow. Like, it didn't come out of nowhere. It's been on the periphery, and they changed their business model one year into that 11-year journey, which is essentially where it's at today. And tell me that in the early stages of Uber emerging on the west coast of the United States that there weren't taxi companies who could have stood back and went, hmm, this could emerge as an issue, we could buy this technology. We could build our own technology and with the critical mass and scale we've got, we crush these guys, right? But they wouldn't. They waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited until Uber got critical mass. And in technology, winner takes all. And now you see them getting squeezed in every square corner of the globe, right? And so moving early is critical. Two, I agree. The story the market begins to tell about you because you're a brand that moves or your B2B partners begin to see you as a thought leader, someone on the cutting edge, they begin to change their perception of you, what we call your elevated perspective, which gives you access to them earlier in their decision-making cycles, gives you more credibly, credibility and influence with them in their decision-making cycles as well, just by virtue of the fact that you're on the edge, if that makes sense. And then the third piece, which you pointed out so elegantly, is this notion that actually action precedes clarity anyway. And until you're really moving and iterating and looking at the learning value and the, the tuition value of an experience, it's unlikely you're ever going to get and become truly innovative. Because if you wait until the business model's proven and the margins are exactly what you need it to be and the scale's there, someone's already created the market and you're going to buy them at a multiple far beyond what you should have spent mm. four or five years before. How do you, if you're listening to this and you're an organization that says, all right, look, I, I get what what Pete's saying and I understand and I'm intrigued and, and I think I can leverage this edge of disruption model and 
and I, I want to I want to begin to shift our focus, our thinking, our mindsets towards being an organization that matters. I mean, how do you begin that process? It's not it's one. It's not an overnight process, and it shouldn't be. But but how do you begin? Yeah. So number one, you pick an edge that you're going to go after, mm. right? Now that edge might be the use of data in driving operational efficiency. It might be moving up the value chain and solving a higher order problem. Like you pick the edge that you're going to go after, and as you as you move towards that edge, you question your assumptions. Number one, so you don't take yesterday's beliefs into today's world. Two, you take an optimistic rather than a pessimistic stance. And instead of asking the question, how is this going to ruin my business? You ask the question, how could I use this to grow my business? And then you begin to explore the questions that emerge that are unanswered by other people, other technologies, other providers. Number one, discover your edge of disruption. Number two is based on your leaning in, based on the learning you're doing, maybe you're doing pilots, little experiments, just controlled tests. You begin to establish a point of view. You begin to develop and, and, and generate some data that ultimately leads to insight. And you should be establishing that point of view. Three, you want to then start talking about it in your sales conversations, in your marketing materials, in your internal communications, because there's no point being on the edge if no one knows you're on the edge, because the only goal there at this point, you're not making any money there, right? Like you're still discovering the business models of the future. The only goal there is to give you access to the relationships you need to ultimately co-create the business models because you're never operating in isolation. And that's the second section, what we call elevated relationships. And it's dead simple, play high, because people who can say no and can't say yes, say no. I mean, you need to be talking to people at the right level. Two, you need to engage in partnerships where your incentives are aligned to your customers and your markets, your suppliers, your partner's success. And number three, you need to understand the interdependencies of everything. So often people come up with these cutting edge ideas on the edge of disruption and say, I've got this solution for you. And they're completely oblivious to how changing that one thing could destroy 50 to others within the business. Mm. And then you take that relationship with that perspective that you've developed at the edge and you begin to build the model. So you actually take the risks, you actually start to create the product, the solutions, the, the pricing models, the customer pathways and journeys. And we call that start being the disruptor. And the final thing is to act in a way worthy of, of a leadership position, which maybe we can dive into a little more. It's called answering the call. Well, that's, I, that's, there you go, there's the eight steps. It's so funny you said that because that was where I was going to close. I've heard you talk about that, and it's obviously referenced in the book. Uh, what do you mean by answering the call? Well, answering the call comes from Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces and this notion that every hero at some point on their journey gets called to be great and they either answer that call or they run from it. And our belief is there's no business in the history of the world that got set up to be average. They're all set up and established and, and grown and should be led from a perspective of, you know, we want to become the greatest version of ourselves. We want to matter more in our marketplace than anyone else, right? And at some point you have to own that, but that takes a pretty long-term view. And the companies we studied constantly made decisions like to invest in research and development, to partner with local universities, to build capability and capacity, to create community outcomes, not just investor outcomes. They really thought about the importance of, of acting like a leader in all facets of their business. And what we came to understand, and they often described as almost becoming the best version of themselves or the hero, to use Joseph Campbell's metaphor. Yeah, I, thinking of uh, Luke Skywalker, he answered the call you know, when his family was yeah. killed and, and he could have 
become a drunk at the cantina or he sought to <laughs> change the galaxy. So yeah. he answered or, the call. Or Rocky or Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a predictable path. Yep, yep, yep. And and most people in business think that their business trajectory isn't like that. And, and frankly, it ought to be. They ought to look at it that way because because they are impacting the marketplace. They are serving real humans. They, I mean, they're, they're making a difference in people's lives. They ought to look at it that way. And and uh, if you do, I think that's when you become a company that matters or the, certainly can become a company that, that, that can matter. Very, very exciting. Well, Pete, we could talk for hours on this stuff. I mean, Lord knows if you and I had a few hours to sit down and just uh, riff on this stuff, we could get into some pretty deep conversations. Unfortunately for today, we're out of time. Before I let you go, a couple of things. Should anyone have any questions, how can they find you? Where can they learn more about the Carrikins Group? And most importantly, where can they get their hands on a copy of Matter? So Matter, any bookstore, any online retailer that you like, so pick your favorite, carrikinsgroup.com, K-A-R-R-I-K-I-N-S group.com. Subscribe to the newsletter there, send us a note, or if you're looking for me direct, LinkedIn's probably your best bet, Peter Sheehan, S-H-E-A. H-A-N, I'm more than happy to answer questions. And, you know, we have a couple of hundred staff spread around the world. There's, there's a, if you've got a challenge, there's probably someone in our team who knows how to solve it. So more than happy to help out. Peter Sheehan, founder and group CEO of the Carrikins Group and the author of a new book called, actually the co-author of a book called Matter. Move beyond the competition, create more value, and become the obvious choice. Peter, real pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks, Todd. All right. All the time we have for today. Again, on behalf of my guest, Pete Sheehan, I am Todd Schnick. We'll see you soon on Intrepid Business. Thank you for listening to Intrepid Media. We appreciate your attention. To receive everything we do, simply go to intrepidmailinglist.com. That's intrepidmailinglist.com and sign up. You can also find us at intrepid.media and on iTunes. And to support the important work we do on your behalf, a rating and review on iTunes will help spread our work far and wide. Again, we certainly appreciate your support. Now get out there, be intrepid, and we'll see you next time.